This week on Writers, Inc. You know, the enthusiasm, I don't think, is the issue for me. It's more like middle-aged exhaustion, I guess. You know, I always feel enthusiastic, and I feel like my back won't cooperate, or my, you know, I'm, I'm so tired, I can't keep going. J.K. Rowling was nearly homeless when she wrote the first Harry Potter book. Stephen King penned Carrie in a small desk wedged between a washer and dryer. James Patterson worked in advertising and famously crafted the Toys R Us theme song long before becoming an author. Join New York Times bestseller J.D. Barker and indie powerhouses Jay Thorne and Zach Bohannon as they pull back the curtain on some of the world's most prolific authors. Where do they start? What is their process? The biggest names in publishing all have origin stories, all have tips and secrets. What does it take to consistently top the bestseller lists and become a household name? Get your notepad out, school's in session. This is Writer's Inc. The devil went down to Georgia, J.D. Have you seen him down there? <laughs> I am in Georgia, hanging out in the mountains. So my, my wife bought, you know, we, we've got a, a bunch of rental properties, and she bought this place, and I think she only bought it because it looks like the lodge from Dirty Dancing. I think, like, that's the reason that she actually wanted it, but it's this <laughs> ginormous house that's, like, it's on the top of the mountain. Um, the road going up to it is insane. I mean, it starts off as gen generously a, a one-lane road where you can get two cars through if you're you know, really, really careful. But then it gets even more narrow. And like when you get all the way up to the top to where this house is, there's no way you're getting two people, two cars through that road at the same time. Like somebody is backing up if you encounter somebody else. Um, but it, I mean, it's a gorgeous house. I mean, I sent you some pictures. Like the, the view is just absolutely insane. Like this, we had the sunset last night, you know, going down over the mountains, like big old swimming pool. Um, it just, it, it needs a little bit of work, but she's uh, hoping to have it up on Airbnb and the, the usual suspects, you know, but by, by the end of this month. So she's over there right now with my daughter, you know, meeting the various, you know, cleaners and vendors and exterminators and different people that she needs to make that happen. Um, I'm, I'm locked in a hotel room right now, just trying to work. <laughs> I, I, I was going to go over there with them, but like, it's, you know, it's tough explaining to my daughter what I'm doing. You know, it's, it's weird for me to be around during the daytime because normally she stays out of my office. So, you know, she sees this as some kind of like special occasion and she wants to loop me in on everything that's going on. So I throw my headphones on and she's like, dada, dada, but, but, but do this, do that. Let me show you this. Let me show you that. And yeah. Uh, and just to add to that, I, I think she's trying to, to eke in on the family business. We were sitting down at, at breakfast this morning and, and she goes, Mama, Dada, I want to tell you a story. And she starts rattling off this story about a, a monster that lives in the deep, dark woods and how it comes out at night and eats families and then disappears. Like she rattled off this story, you know, probably about 200 words and then just ended it with the end. Um, and like she told the same story to my wife and told it to me and like, you know, almost word for word, like each time she reiterated it, which is, you know, that's the first time I've ever seen her do that, you know, at, at four years old to, you know, basically create something like that. And it was just really cool. Um, but at the same time, like I've got no idea where she's getting an idea for a monster <laughs> that eats families. <laughs> Dude, my, my daughter, are... my daughter does the same stuff. She tells like all these wild, like vampire and zombie stories and stuff. And uh, it, it was funny. I don't know if I told a story on this podcast, but the posters behind me one night, me and her sat on my couch back here and she retold me the story just based off every cover. And it was funny when she got the three story method, she just said that one's trash. And then she skipped and <laughs> went to the next one. But I, and actually for Christmas, you just remind me too. I need to sit down and do this with her, but we bought this thing. Um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the company Lulu. They're like where you can get your books printed and stuff. Uh, and, uh, they make a thing for kids. It's like a kit that you get and they can write their own story out huh. and like tell their own story and draw pictures and stuff. And then you send it off and they sent you a printed book back wow. of it. 
So I'm going to sit down and do that with her and, and see what that comes out. So she'll like have her own book now. So, um, it's, uh, and she likes to tell everybody at the playground that her daddy's an author. So you'll, you'll get there eventually where she really knows what's going on. Uh, I didn't, I always got the impression she didn't care. I, she she will my, eventually. <laughs> she puts me in my chair and says, Dad, I'll go make words. But, you know, I think she... <laughs> <laughs> I, but yeah, Jackie, it, was just, it was cool. To, like, we, we just really want to encourage that. And uh, I'm going to have to check yeah. that out for sure. I, I want to know if you've, uh, if you've sold the options to her story yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that'll be next. Paramount's going to bite down my daughters. <laughs> I know how you hey. think, man. You're like, what production company can I get this in front of? You never know. <laughs> oh, well, you're working on a house. What are you working on, Zach? Uh, well, I'm still um, in Amazon KDP hell, which has been awesome. How's Gustav so still... doing? Yeah. That I, yeah, so now they're trying to say one of my books is was published by a guy named Gustav Klimt, which after doing some research is a painter from the 1800s. <laughs> so this is real folks. I showed Jay the email. So, um, so I don't know if someone is pirating at me and using that name or what's going on, but, uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm in that, right. That's not the only thing I'm working on, but yeah. Do, do you have any quotes in there that, that might've tricked some kind of, you know, like copyright system or algo? Like I can't think that there would be like, oh. I, I, I know. I don't think so. I mean, uh, I I don't know. Like, and I'm I'm gonna try. I'm gonna get somebody on the phone. This kind of is is my next step. I just I was gonna do that yesterday and didn't get around to it. So I'm gonna try to today or tomorrow just to get somebody on the phone. But so that's that's going on. But um, so that's been going on. And other than that, I'm just drafting Dead South Six, which is going really really. I'm really enjoying this new editing, like we talked about last week, where I'm starting my day by revising the day before. Um, I mean, I really feel like by the time I'm done, you know, to get to the end of this book, I'm just going to be able to turn it over to my editor. And so I'm going to do that and just kind of see what happens. And then, uh, you know, I've, I've had a lot of creator dad uh, interviews stacked up this week and next week trying to get ahead again. Actually, now um, both of you guys have been on. So, J.D., as of this comes out, you're still the most recent episode. Um, but... Uh, and I'm starting to talk to moms too, which has kind of been a change. So I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. So uh, that, that was a change that took like a, a lot of thought because when Jay and I first came up with this idea, it was like I was going to, I wanted to go really, really niche and I was, you know, all this stuff. But I've kind of, as I've done more of them, I'm like, everything I've got out of these conversations like has nothing to do with gender. When I thought originally it was going to be more like guy talk. So I'm, you know, expanding and going and talking to moms and stuff. So that'll be, uh, It'll be fun. It'll expand who I can talk to and, and, and all that good stuff. So that should be fun. So, yeah, you that's know, what I've been working on. Honestly, with you know, my wife is a writer, too. And, you know, we, we are, we're at different places in our career. Like, I, I've already had publishing deals when our daughter was born, and, and she's still trying to shop that first novel. Um, but, you know, like, home responsibilities tend to get divvied up in a certain way, you know, especially when you've got a little, a little baby or, you yeah. know, in our, in our case, a little girl even more. Um, and like a lot of people don't really understand how much of that lands on the shoulders of the mother. Yeah. Um, you know, like and my, my wife, you know, like she, you know, to, she still gets up, you know, super early. Like she gets up at five in the morning so she can knock out words and work on her book before our daughter gets up, you know, and then because she wants to be that uh, my mom a hundred percent, she doesn't want to, you know, be parenting and leaning over to her, her laptop. And, but like, I give her so much credit for being able to do both at the same time. So honestly, like, I, I think dads are boring. I think you should switch the whole thing, go to creator mom and, 
<laughs> be done with those. those are the stories I want to hear and honestly those are the people that probably need the most guidance because it is so tricky to try and figure out how to navigate those waters you know when you first have a child you know, it's so disruptive you know and yeah. you, try, you try to keep going and you know most of the, the writer moms that I know they, they find a way to do it and they're a lot more you know they, they persevere a lot more than some of the men do yeah it'll be it'll be good like I said when I first started you know I was thinking I was going to have more guy-centric conversations and I wanted to have like this community where like guys can talk about stuff where they wouldn't want women around necessarily, <laughs> like, you know, and, uh, but it's, I don't know, it just has kind of shifted. And, um, and for a lot of the reasons you just mentioned, I wanted to start talking to moms and stuff. So, you know, I've got some, some good folks lined up and it should, uh, it should bring a fun new diet. And I'm not going to change the name or anything. Cause I'm still a creator dad. So I just, I have to slightly change the messaging, I guess. So, but that's okay. I'll get around to that. Cool. Nice. Nice. I'm still working on uh, Bigfoot versus Zombie Squirrel, still drafting. I'm into uh, the third month of a six-month uh, project, so that's definitely making progress on that. also want to give a shout-out. I'll have a link in the show notes. Uh, Mark Leslie Lefebvre and Melissa Snark put together a story bundle, and the three-story method book is in it. Um, if you've never bought a story bundle before, they're great because you basically pay what you want. Uh, there's a slider. You set the price, and it's a bunch of books. Uh, our friends Honoré uh, Quarters in there, uh, Rebecca Symes in there. So uh, it's storybundle.com slash writing. Um, there'll be a link in the show notes if you if you want to check that out. Um, please do. And then uh, also one to just a, in a bit of uh, more podcasting news, I think, than publishing is uh, logged into um, the Anchor FM account and saw a big ad for video podcast on Spotify. So I know that, uh, Zach, you had mentioned that from Rogan's show uh, f- several months ago, and it seems like they're starting to roll that out to the rank-and-file podcasters. So it'll be interesting to see uh, if that catches on. My hunch is, is that it won't unless you're a pretty big name in, in, in the media, uh, just because the nature of podcasting is such that people can do other things while listening, uh, whereas if you're, it's a video podcast, it's kind of like YouTube. So I don't know. I'll be curious to see what happens with it, though. Um, I just wanted to throw this out there. I got an email right before we jumped on from Susan, uh, Susan May. She's working on AudibleGate. Um, she's trying to track down some contracts, and I don't know if anybody wants to volunteer this, but if we have anybody in the audience that has a contract with the top five that includes audio rights, um, she, she's hoping to get a couple different versions of it or you know, between different dates or something just to get some of that legal language over to their attorneys, and they're having a real tough time trying to piece that together. But they're, they're storming forward. They've got a, a really strong law firm behind them, and they're, they're still working on that. So... Kudos. That's a lot of work. All right. Audible gate to be continued. Yes, sir. <laughs> uh, let's give a nice warm uh, shout out to our wonderful friends over there at Kobo Writing Life who, as you guys know, sponsor the podcast. We'll uh, continue to be sponsoring the podcast into 2022. Uh, they have some great tools for publishing wide, setting your own price, different uh, prices in different countries, uh, monthly promotional opportunities, and none of that involves any level of exclusivity. So if you are thinking about publishing your book beyond just the normal places, head on over to KoboWritingLife.com. And I also want to give a wonderful uh, thank you to our patrons over there at Patreon.com slash Podcast. And if you would like to submit questions for our monthly Q&A episode, become a patron today. All right. So, J.D., who do we have up this week? This week we've got uh, Wendy Corsi-Staub. She's a USA Today and New York Times bestseller. Um, She's won the uh, Mary Higgins Clark Award. She lives in New York uh, with her husband and uh, two children. Her latest book is The Other Family. It releases on uh, January 18th. 
Um, and I'm trying to get to the bottom of this. I believe she has somewhere between 70 and 100 novels out there. And I was I was Googling her, and I, like basically whatever you know, different sites have different different totals. I mean, all the totals are extremely impressive, but um, yeah, somewhere between 70 and 100 novels. So just imagine that. I think I've got nine, so I, I'm a slacker. Um, here she is, Wendy Corsi Staub. What grade did you get on your Abraham Lincoln essay in third grade? <laughs> oh, I wish. I okay. So it's hanging on my wall in my office, right above. Is me. it really? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. What, I guess she didn't grade it, but um, interestingly, I found it in my baby book after my mom passed away. Uh, my teacher. I was back in touch with my teacher. Years later, she found me and uh, heard that I had said that she had inspired me and. She kept asking where the, the essay was, and I eventually found it in a baby book along with rejection letters because I had submitted it apparently to like Ladies Home Journal, <laughs> <laughs> thinking they would publish it when I was in third grade. Um, but I, when I looked at it, the funny thing is, it's it's not very good. <laughs> I gotta admit, it's in a frame on my wall. Let me see if I could tilt up. Well, I don't know if it'll work, but um, and then you might see my cat like walking around in there. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I uh, it's not very good. It's okay. I use dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> Did your did your teacher ever explain why she modeled it for the class as as you know the essay? She said that I was gifted and, um, you know, I, I was probably the only one who didn't complain about that assignment because I was secretly, you know, you don't want to admit that when you're in third grade and everybody else is complaining, but uh, I was so excited. It was my first ever creative writing assignment. We didn't get them very often back then. You know, they didn't worry about arts in the school the way they do now. Uh, true. They weren't as, you know, I, I, I wouldn't say worry about, um, I need more coffee. <laughs> but, um, I'm sorry. So anyway, yeah, it, it, she said I was gifted. She went with that years later when she heard that I was a writer and we became pen pals at the end of her life for, for years. So um, she pretended that I was just the most gifted student she ever had. It was a confidence booster. It's so cool, though, after you know, you're coming up on almost 100 novels published and, and it all started with that third grade essay. It did. It didn't. And the lesson there, um, and, I, and I always say this when I speak to kids in school, as I do that sometimes, you know, author day or whatever. I always say, you know, remember that your teachers are here to inspire you. And I often tell readers, too, if somebody inspired you and uh, made a difference in your life, tell them, tell them, because I got to do that. I got to thank her. And I try to remember that. That's a wonderful uh, gift of reciprocity. Thank you. <laughs> well, let's talk about, um, now that we talked about the first one, let's talk about the latest one, the latest piece of writing here, The Other Family. One of, uh, one of the best twists, and I, don't, I won't spoil it for listeners, so, Thank you. but one of the best twists in a thriller I've read in a long time. Tell us a little bit about it. Oh, well, I, I love that you said that because I kept saying, you know, I had my husband read it, I had my son read it, and I hovered over them like, did you guess the twist yet? Did you guess? <laughs> I want to blindside you. Um, I hate when I read a book and I know the ending before the book is even underway. So, um, so thank you for recognizing that. I really worked hard on this one. Um, so yeah, that was uh, what. What was the original question? I got so so caught up in the yeah, <laughs> compliment. Give us you. the uh, the book flap summary of it. Okay, so a family moves um, from LA to Brooklyn, 
to a, it's a townhouse. It's not a brownstone. It started out as a brownstone, but it's a townhouse. And it uh, is the scene of an unsolved murder 25 years ago. Um, it was a triple homicide. A family was murdered in the house and the killer got away. And as it unfolds, the family becomes, well, mostly the teenage daughter becomes convinced that someone's watching her. She's, you know, she's looking out the window and somebody's on the roof next door or she's on the street and this, this stranger comes up to her and uh, calls her by another name. So she's obsessed with true crime. Her name is Stacy. Um, and her mom, Nora, is basically, she's the central character, but her mom, isn't sure whether she believes her and she's a little worried. They're all a little worried about her because she's obsessed with Lizzie Borden as I was growing up, <laughs> which worried my parents too. <laughs> so funny. I, Cause I, I was like, I was Stacy too. I, yeah. I, I was well, that kid. Right? Crime. Yeah. I have shelves of it behind me. <laughs> <laughs> I love it still. But like, you know, experimenting with cigarettes and, and the lack oh, yeah. of self-confidence, oh, yeah. the whole thing, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of me and Stacey. There's a lot of me and Nora. Um, and, you know, it's a, it's the perfect family. In fact, that was one of the, the alternative titles we had, but I think it's been used. And uh, they're perfect uh, as far as Stacey's concerned. She's kind of like the misfit. And the mom, Nora, is very big on... Um, just things being as they should be. She's she's not rigid, but she um, has worked really hard to create her family, and she gave up her career to raise her daughters, and her husband um, has been transferred to New York. That's why they're here. So she is the kind of person who likes things to be as they should be, or as maybe other people think they should be. So this is rough for her, you know, the murder house and the, the daughter and Stacy's the misfit. Like she's not perfect. She resents her perfect, beautiful family. Yes. Yeah. Piper is like the the, the model kid, right? And then there's yes, Stacy. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. She was the model kid in some ways. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You. Uh, again, I don't. I, I'm. I'm talking around certain things because I don't want to spoil the experience that's for the okay, reader. Yeah, but you. You have. Um, you, you very skillfully weave the memento mori and sort of this Victorian perspective of death into the story and it manifests in the in a photograph that's on the wall can you talk about sort of where that interest came from or how you how you brought that into the story oh yeah i um i discovered years ago i i mean i used to I, i'm a history buff too and it might have been in the fall river museum the lizzie borden um my lizzie borden obsession might have come into play there that i first saw um they had a collection of four photographs um or an exhibit I think, um, of Victorian death, sort of Victorian mourning rituals. And they had hair jewelry. I remember that. I used that in another book. But they also uh, had these photos that people used to take to commemorate their loved one after the loved one had passed. So the loved one would be posed as, you know, sort of part of the family. Or there would be siblings, like, holding the dead, the dead child, a sort of to make it look like they were alive and they would paint the eyes on. And it was just the most gruesome, macabre, um, but touching in a way um, aspect of, of mourning for me, because we these days have plenty of photographs of our loved ones, but a lot of times back then they didn't. And that was the only way to capture them. So, uh, so I, it plays into this plot because there's a photograph hanging on the wall of the house. And um, when they move in and they discover that, the girl who's seemingly sitting between her parents um, is, is 
actually dead and it was hundreds a hundred years ago or 150 years ago but yeah you can't tell that at a glance and once they know that it sort of takes on a creepy meaning I think from a writer's perspective, it, it was a, a wonderful example of, of what some people call a charged object or a totem. It, it, had, a, it had real significance within the story, and it, it felt like a touchstone. Um, it felt like a, a perspective into the past that connected the past and the future. So I was just, I was just really taken by that, and I was so curious as to where it came from. Thank you. I was worried that I used a little bit too much of it because I was so fascinated by it. I think I pulled back a little, but thank you for saying that. Because, you know, oddly, my husband and my son and my editor, nobody mentioned it, so you're the first. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. All right. Well, <laughs> maybe on sort of the, uh, the happier side, I think there's another uh, very skillful technique that you have, and it runs through most of your stories, but especially in this one, is your use of the family pet. Uh, can you talk about Cato and how you use Cato in the story? Uh, as my cat sits here and glares at me, she's right <laughs> next to me. Here. She's like, there's a dog. I don't know. <laughs> she's like, what? A dog. Yeah. I, I you know, I, I love pets. I um, have done rescue. I have cats, but I love dogs as well. And I knew that the story needed a pet. Um, there's a good reason for it and I won't give away. It's a little bit of a spoiler. Well, the, the dog stumbles upon a clue. Um, but Cato, yeah, Cato is sort of a nod to Cato Kalin. You know, the family named him after the, uh, in the OJ Simpson I case. I thought that was like, probably the case. The yeah. yeah. <laughs> the guy who moved into the guest house and just never left. So they sort of like slyly named the dog when they were back in LA after, you know, the, the thing that came and didn't leave. And, um, the daughter's obsession with true crime comes into play there. But the dog also is a device to get them out of the house and meeting people, you know, from a writer's standpoint, um, you know, and who doesn't love a dog? It's a, and it's a pug. He's really lazy. He doesn't, he doesn't like to do much. So when he does something, you have to pay attention. You know, he's up to something. It's so true. I mean, you've taken an archetype, a character archetype, and you've placed it on a pet. And because that pet is the archetype, what he does naturally is comic relief. Like, you, you know, it's not a gag. You're not writing gags for Cato. You're just putting, you're just letting Cato be Cato. And that's what makes it funny. Yeah, he felt very real to me. Um, and I, he's, you know, I hate to say goodbye at the end of a book. I've done a lot of trilogies where I get to revisit the characters and this is really a standalone. And I kind of felt like, oh, maybe he could be adopted elsewhere. So I could use him again. <laughs> you could probably drop him in another story as a little yeah. Easter egg, right? Exactly, or he could run away. From yeah. <laughs> well, it's this is something for it's hard for me to imagine, and I know it's a question you get all the time, but I know listeners are thinking it. How do you come to the page excited after publishing more than ninety novels? Like, how do you bring that same level of enthusiasm? Um, I you know the enthusiasm I don't think is the issue for me. It's more like middle-age exhaustion I guess <laughs> you know I always feel enthusiastic and I feel like my back won't cooperate or my you know I'm, I'm so tired <laughs> I can't keep going so I think the enthusiasm is always there because my mind is always going and I really when I write I really inhabit the world um, and I tend to write seven days a week 12 to 14 hours a day I'm just you know obsessively at it until the book is done so when you're living in that world it's you're a part of it and more, even more so than your real life in some ways, which is you know, frustrating for my family, but. 
Yeah. So yeah. I'm always enthusiastic. I feel like I want to see what happens next. And if I'm bored, then the reader's going to be bored. So I really try to to keep that momentum going. Well, let's dig into that process a little bit. Uh, you, you get up at 4.30 or 5 a.m., you're reviewing the previous day's words, uh, you're aiming for 5,000 words a week, and sometimes you get 10, uh, yeah. mostly, mostly a single draft. Um, st still all your process is still functioning that way? Yeah, it is. It's funny, and, and there's no right or wrong. I always tell people that. Obviously, we all know that. You're a writer. You know, right? It's it, That's my process. Um, it works for me, and I can't tamper with it. I train myself to get up early when I have my first son, who's now 26, so it's been a while. Um, when I would get up with him in the middle of the night, I'd put him back down and write for a few hours, and that's how I sort of discovered I could write on that end of the clock. I used to be a night person, now I'm a morning person. Um, but that works for me. I I do swim an hour every morning. I listen to an audio book while I'm swimming. Uh, it's for my terrible back. And I'm not a very sedentary person. I'm not a good sedentary person. So I, um, you know, I keep at it, but I do take little breaks or I'll walk around to think about something. And it just works for me. I'm immersed in it. Now, a lot of people think that they they are locked into um, a certain uh, personality type. Like I'm, I'm, a, I'm just a morning person or, or I'm just a night owl. That's all. I can't help it. H how did you switch back and forth? Um, I guess I never switched back to being a night person, <laughs> <laughs> which is, although when my kids were starting to drive, I have two sons and, you know, three years apart when they started to drive and they'd be out at night with the car, you know, I, I was up, I couldn't sleep until they came home, which was frustrating. So, um, I find that my process is better in the morning. I'm sharper and the day hasn't made any kind of impact on my, um, on my writing. You know, it's not a good day. It's not a bad day. It's just, it's just, that's how I kick it off. So I have to keep it that way. Um, and even, you know, I don't know, I'll sit down at night, eat dinner and fall asleep in the chair by nine o'clock. I just can't reverse that, you know, even when I'm between projects. Have you ever experimented with other uh, methods. Uh, I, I know I suffer from some of the some of the same writing ailments: arth arthritic fingers and sore back. Uh, things like dictation. Have you have you experimented with with that? No, um, and I do have arthritis pretty badly in one hand, especially. So I should. And thank you for reminding me <laughs> my that that my doctor suggested that about a year or two ago. Um, so yeah, no, I. I tend to think I'm visual, so I like to see it. You know, I'm constantly rereading and reading and plugging things in and elsewhere. And I color code manuscripts. Um, I'll highlight passages that need to move. Because sometimes you do this, well, I do. When I'm writing and it's early on, I want to get stuff down. You know, I, I, it's important to me now to know that this happened to these people, but it's, it may not need to come into play until later in the manuscript. So I'll color code it. Like this paragraph can be lifted. Um, and it may not, I might cut it all together, but, um, so yeah, I think I need to see it. I don't think I could do that if it was, you know, I can read aud on audio and if someone reads me, I prefer it actually, but writing, I think I need to see. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. Well, hey, email me. I might have some tips for you on dictation. Oh, good. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, how do you do it? Do you, yeah. have you tried it? Uh, you know, I have a, uh, ebbs and flows. Like I, I have, um, I, it for nonfiction. I feel like it works a whole lot better. Or if you're writing in first person, because it feels more natural. That makes sense. But yeah. if you're doing characters and they're, you know, and, and dialogue, it, 
can get tricky, but there's um, there are different tools you can use where you can see the words come up on the screen as you're dictating, oh. as opposed to just like oh. on a recorder. So might be worth considering. Oh yeah, that I didn't know. Okay, that would make that would make it much better because sometimes I think more quickly than I. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good to know. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Are, uh, have you always been a pantser? Yeah, I and it's interesting. I just wrote uh, so pantser. You know as much as I can be. Like I, I have to give them some kind of an outline, but I just wrote a book for my British publisher, um, completely blind book. She said, I don't need to know what it's about. It's a fifth in a series, my Lily Dale series. The fourth one's coming out this week and I wanted to get the other one in early. So I was kind of on a roll and I thought, let me just write it. So I said, do you want like an outline? Do you need me to send you a proposal? It's already under contract. It was a two book and she said, no, just write it. So it was, so liberating in so many ways but i kept thinking if she doesn't like the main you know the the, the thing the plot hinges on was a little bit of a it was out there um then then the whole book gets scrapped so i realized i could be a pantser creatively i'm a pantser but i was really uncertain the whole time i was writing it i sent it to her before thanksgiving and she read it my grateful moment of thanksgiving she read it and accepted it uh loved it so thank god because <laughs> Because usually I have at least some kind of a, you know, an idea and they know where I'm going and I know where I'm going. Yeah. Yeah. And like, and like you said earlier, there's no right or wrong way to do it. As long as you're finishing the book and meeting your obligations, then it's the right way for you. Yeah. And the shiny objects always pop up just like in real life. I'm kind of like, Oh, this character's really interesting. Let me go on this tangent and see where it takes me. And, you know, luckily my editor at Harper Lucia, um, macro, has, she knows me really well and she'll say, I trust you, try it, you know, so just do what you have to do and if it doesn't work, we'll fix it. You've been a, a pro at this for a long time. Can you, can you think back to that first moment where you felt like I can do this, like this, this is for real. Was it a book? Was it a, uh, a sales figure? What was it for you? Um, the first moment was in college. I sold a poem to 17 magazine. Wow. You know, I got a check for $15, <laughs> bought beer for all my friends with it. Back then you got more than one beer, but that was the moment I felt like, cause that was, I was always submitting things and um, getting rejected all the way through school. You know, I just I really wanted to be a published author and I was so um, ambitious that it was always my end game and I just like went for it. So when that happened, my father's a banker. Uh, my mom was a teacher. She was always like, do you know, follow your dream? My father's, how are you going to support yourself? You're crazy. You know, he, he, they, they made me go to college. I didn't want to go. I just wanted to move to New York and become a writer. And uh, thank God they made me go to college and get my degree. But yeah, I felt like when I sold that poem, they, my dad kind of felt like, okay, $15 is the start, but she's serious about this. So it's framed. It's up on my, uh, up on my shelf. Oh, too. nice, nice. My other mental. Yeah, I like to look at things that have been um, informed my career or sort of inspired my career. On bad days, I can remember. You know, this is what you wanted. <laughs> Stick with it. Yeah, and and uh, more recently, I think you've been doing more with television scripts. Can you tell us a little yeah. bit about that? Yeah, um, I did have a book. Uh, I, I write under a pseudonym. I haven't done it in a while, but Wendy Markham is my uh, women's fiction pseudonym. So one of my uh, Wendy Markham novels was turned into a Hallmark movie uh, a few years back. And when that happened, I realized, you know, 
a television is such a powerful medium. And I read the script that they, you know, I didn't write that script, but I read it and I thought I could, I could do this. And I was working with a producer around the same time I wanted to option some of my work. And, uh, and she said, let's see what you can do. So I wrote a script for her. Um, I have a few now that we've done. And I felt like it was a great, um, it was something to do between books. And it was another outlet, a creative outlet that, it kind of jumps out my brain. It's a different process. I learned screenwriting from a screenwriter friend of mine. He and I and my husband co-wrote a script, a, a feature script, uh, not made yet, <laughs> yet. <laughs> but it was a comedy. So that process, he's also a writing professor at NYU and he taught me, you know, just sort of the difference in, in writing narrative and writing for, for, for screen. It's just so different and I love both. What would be an example of something that's radically different? Well, you can't go into people's heads. So, <laughs> you know, you have to show everything. And another thing is I, I tend to um, realize, he'd always say, get out, like get out of the scene. You know, let's let's get out, get in, get out. And I realize you, you can't meander because that's time is money when you're producing something. So I learned, you know, sort of the the, the power of a punchy sort of, jump to the next thing and jump to the next thing. And I think it's helped with writing too. I think, you know, because people these days, you know, I started, started this business a few decades ago. So um, the reader has changed. The reader has changed how they read, you know, they want instant gratification. They want shorter scenes. I just, I don't mean it as a blanket statement, like all readers, but people tend to be more impatient. They want um, just sort of, I, I, instant gratification is the only way I can, I can say it. So I've yeah. learned to sort of you know, streamline, I guess. I think it's a safe assumption to say attention spans have, have shortened over the years. I think that's fair. Yeah. Do you? Yeah, it's not just mine then, right? No, I don't <laughs> think so. <laughs> uh, are you focusing more on adaptations or writing screenplays from scratch? Um, both, actually. Mm -hmm. I've got a couple of adaptations that I'm working with. Um, this producer and another producer on right now. Um, so those are adaptations of my books, but I also wrote um, an original screenplay with my son. Uh, my younger son is, uh, he's working in production at NBC now, but he was, he came home for the pandemic. He was in film school about to graduate. Um, and he was here last March and I said, let's just, let's look, let, we've talked about this. You're stuck here with me. Let's try it. And he was, it was, great working with him and it was pretty good so we're tweaking it when he has time for mom yeah <laughs> but that was the original that we wrote and oh. and also the feature so yeah i have some ideas i just don't have enough time for this because i'm under contract with two publishers so it's been sort of like put that aside even though it's fun and focus 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 it, it would seem very overwhelming uh to me, I, I like when you when you sit down to adapt one of your novels to a screenplay. Are you just like starting at zero and you open up Final Draft or whatever software and you're just like, let's just see where this goes, or do you take a more systematic approach and look for certain chapters that you can maybe cut or shorten or abbreviate? Yeah, no, it's not systematic. I never do anything in a systematic way, and I think sometimes I should. Um, sort of all over the place, but reading my books on audio is the way that I start because that way you hear it performed and you sort of, so I'll, I'll just like spend two or three days getting household things done and listening or swimming and listening. 
And that way I can sort of know, at least I'm familiar again with the book and I can see what works um, when you're, you know, with dialogue and what, what's extraneous or what is completely, um, you know, just narrative or something that's, you know, belongs in a book. It doesn't belong in a screenplay. So. Yeah. Yeah. I know you're a bit of a research nut. Uh, you have a favorite historical period? Oh, God, you know, it's changed now. It used to be Victorian times. I always loved that. I really used it a lot with the other family. Um, I just did a series that was set in the 60s and the 80s, um, the Foundling series that I did. So I found out that the 80s were a historical period. I <laughs> Still wears one of my clothes from back then. I said, that makes me feel really old when you say it that way. I know, me too. The music, I was like, but... Um, you know, so I love that, but really the period that I love, and maybe it's because I just finished watching Downton Abbey, we binged it for the last few months, um, is that sort of, you know, the, the 19-teens and the turn of the, you know, turn of the century through the early 20s. I love that now, research-wise. So, yeah. Do you, uh, do you have to hold yourself back? I mean, I, I know some writers can go so deep into the research, they don't get to the writing. Do you, do you need any sort of self-regulation when it comes to research? Oh God, I need it. I don't do it enough, but I need it. Yeah, I totally, I go down that rabbit hole. I can do it for days and days, you know? Um, and I always say, oh, there's another book in here and there's another book in here. So yeah, I have to, I have to pull back. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Wendy, it's been a, a delight talking to you. I, I have one last question for you that, uh, it's just totally open-ended and hopefully you can just have some fun with it. There's no right or wrong answer. Uh, but you, you are a veteran and you've seen a lot. Uh, where is this publishing industry headed in say the next two to three years? I wish I knew obviously, <laughs> but, um, you know, books will always be around. That's one thing I've learned. Uh, people will say, Oh, the book is dead or, Oh, the print book is dead. And that's just, not the case there will always be books there will always just as indie bookstores or made this big comeback um you know there will always be books there will always be readers who want material so it may be about content providing content in a different way on some um level but there will also always be be print books i just think if you can write it out as an author um you know that's been the trick I think because it's I've seen so many roller coaster moments over my career. I just learned never get too comfortable and and never stop doing the work as an author because your readers deserve your best effort and you know they're loyal. They'll keep coming back. So I plan to be around like publishing for a long time. All right, Wendy and the other family. Uh, this book was dark. <laughs> I, don't, I, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, JD, let's start with you today. What, what, were, uh, what were some of the things that, that kind of caught your ear from Wendy? You know, the one thing that really jumped out at me um, was the color coding. And I think a lot of people don't do this as, as authors, but um, it's an extremely helpful uh, technique. I, I, I've got a weird si situation because I'm, I'm autistic, and like when I read a book, I can actually see the dialogue in, in different colors, as, as weird as that sounds. Like my brain will assign a particular color to one character, and like all the dialogue, all the text related to that character in my, in my mind when I'm looking at the page, I see it in that color. Um, I've been like that my entire life. Like I actually thought that was normal until I was about six or seven years old, and somebody told me that wasn't how it worked. Um, but as, when I became a book doctor, I used to encourage my, my clients to, to do that. So basically take different color highlighters, assign a color to each character, and then go through the novel 
and highlight the, the various passages. And it, it basically helped on a lot of different levels. You could tell you know, which characters were getting the most weight. Um, you could ensure that every single line in the book actually belonged to somebody because a lot of times what happens, an author will write a line um, that they feel belongs to a particular character and they know who that character is when they write it, but because it's not written clear or concise, when you go back through that text, you can't actually tell. Um, even the author can't tell, so you know somebody else is definitely not going to be able to. So when you're forced to have to assign every line of text to somebody, um, it, it helps to, to do that. So that, that's a, a very good technique um, to be able to, to isolate text and fix problems. Interesting. That's a, that's an interesting way to look at it. Like, because um, the the way she was, it sounded like she was saying it was different from what you're saying. Yeah, like, yeah, no, absolutely. Like, yeah, and I, I know you're not saying. Yeah, it was you know because she was talking about. Uh, I think was it she talking about like um, f you know parts that she might have to cut out later types of yeah. type of stuff. Yeah, it was. It's so it's just I don't know. Just hearing at people's processes and the different ways people do things is always super interesting to me. Yeah, she, she was basically isolating paragraphs she felt she could move around or take out altogether. Yeah. Um, and that's another exercise that I actually do with my beta readers and the instructions that I send them. I, I ask them to highlight any sections they feel that they're skimming um, and just let me know mm. what color they're using. And when I go back through those books, I, I you know, typically I've got five or six of them and I, I always give them paper copies. I'll just spread them all out under my desk. And if I see that you know, number of people or multiple people are highlighting the same paragraphs as things that they're skimming over, most of the time I look for ways to take that out or or shorten it or come up with some way to make it more tight and you know keep the book moving fast it's interesting yeah i i, I t another part of the conversation to me that was really interesting was uh like i'm always fascinated with when you know talking about dictation and uh and I, you know i kind of knew jay's take on it about how for you know you prefer first person really like it for nonfiction. um but uh but that was interesting like i um like I, I really do like the visual aspect when I'm writing, but like I can totally separate that when I'm dictating and don't, and don't need that. And in fact, I think if I was dictating and watching the screen, which she said would work for her, that would totally like basically defeat the purpose for me other than like, it would definitely help my hands, but I feel like it would slow me down so much. So I thought that was, that was interesting. Um, I also feel like, uh, if I was pantsing, it would be basically impossible for me to dictate. Like, I think the prep and the outlining makes that a lot easier. So it's, it's just interesting, like hearing different people's different people's takes on that. Though. So that that was really interesting as well. Well, one of the things that jumped out at me when I heard that is, you know, there's a psychological thing happening there. Like we're, we're used to reading words because they're printed on the page and they have to look yeah. a certain way. So our brain expects them to, to look that way. And I think that's why most of us, like when we edit, you know, a lot of people have to print out their manuscript and look at it on paper. Um, you know, like for me, I have to type the, the words. I need to see where those sentence breaks are. I need to know where the paragraphs breaks are in the white space. All those things are important to me. Um, you know, that being said, though, you know, like Kevin J. Anderson, you know, being able to dictate and, and rattle off a story, you know, like he gets a lot of words by being able to do that. If you can master that, that skill, um, I totally get what you're saying, though. Like if the words were physically appearing in front of me, like right now, like the way that I talk, you know, I, I talk very fast. I've used dictation software before, like the words obviously don't keep the same pace with you. So you're reading a sentence you said two sentences ago on your screen while you're still talking and like it would trip me up, take me out of it. And it, it would be a difficult thing to do, but it's, it's you know, a, yeah, a very good way to, to save your hands. I'm, I'm honestly, I'm getting arthritis from, from all the typing I do. Like I'm, I'm yeah. thinking about those things because it's going to get worse unless I come up with some kind of solution. Yeah, that's the big thing with it is it it would break it because I've, I've tried doing it where I'm looking at the screen and it just breaks my flow because I keep wanting to go back and fix the things that it's making mistakes on. And I would rather just 
go take a walk, spew all that out into my phone, into the Dragon Anywhere app, and then fix it later. You know, because I don't and you know, but I, I can also understand wanting to type it because I don't know the way I can visualize it in my head while I'm talking. I also feel like it makes my dialogue better um, when, when I dictate, obviously, because you're saying it out loud. So um, maybe the answer is somewhere in between there, you know, like when you're actually speaking into the dictation software, you don't look at the screen. And then when you hit that, you know, that blind spot or the, you know, the, the little pause or whatever, then that's where you look at the screen. You edit what you just wrote a little bit and you know, kind of get back into it. Yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. I tell you another part that was another part you kind of brought up before we we went we went to the interview, but uh, like man, kudos to her for being able to write with her husband and her son. <laughs> like, I mean, like obviously all three of us are married and have kids and stuff, and like <clears throat> you know, I just I can't imagine having my wife anywhere near my business. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just like. Uh, I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just, you know, I just, I, I like having that separation, you know, um, I've been in a band with her before. And I mean, that definitely had its moments, you know, where it was, it was more difficult than if it had just been like a friend or a bandmate or something like that. So I, I thought that was really, really interesting. I think I, I know a lot of authors where their, their spouse is their, you know, their alpha reader, you know, and, that, and that's my yeah. case too. You know, and the first time I shared a book with my wife and she read through it, you know, like she basically gave it back to me and said, oh, that's really good. You know, like that, that was her feedback. And like I made her go back and had her go back through and actually provide real commentary. Um, and, and now she's on the opposite side of that scale. Like she completely tears that manuscript up. Like she is not shy. She doesn't hold back. Um, and I'm, I'm cursing her for hours after she hands it back to me. But you know, in the end, on a lot of those things, she's right. Um, and you know, I know I know King. You know, he relies on his wife quite a bit for that. And, and now his sons, you know, are, are all over. You know, reading as, as beta readers as well. And you know, Dean Koontz and his wife. You know, even Patterson to a certain extent with his. I, I can't imagine his wife keeping up <laughs> with all the books he's got going on. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, for a lot of, cause it, it's still, you know, you're keeping it within the household. So it's kind of nice yeah. to have a support person willing to, to jump in there and do that. But it's, it's gotta be a good fit. Yeah. Yeah. Wendy was just a delight to talk to. She, I mean, you can, t she's just a seasoned pro, like, you know, and humble and grounded. And, uh, I, I think that really came through. So it was a very pleasurable conversation for me, for sure. Anything else you guys want to uh, hit on the interview? I was taking notes during her screenwriting tips. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. You know, that's, you know, it's one of the things that I'm working on now. And like she, you know, she hit one of the things, you know, right on the head, like it, you, know, you have to show virtually every single thing, you know? So like when I went through the book and I adapted it all into, into the software, you know, for the screenplay, you know, like that's what I was looking at. I, I grabbed the dialogue cause that was pretty easy, but it's those paragraphs in between that are tricky. Like how do you take these two or three, you know, paragraphs that take place in a character's head and somehow show it on the screen without, you know, changing or ruining or altering the story in a way that hurts you down the road. I, I'll tell you the one tip she gave, which is something I never thought about. And I was like, Oh my God, that's an awesome idea. And I think I, if, if I try to write a screenplay again, I think I would do this, but like listen to the audiobook. I thought that was a really, really cool idea. Um, you know, cause I feel like you could listen, it would be easier to listen to the audiobook and also like be taking notes at the same time too. And, and, you know, not having to switch back. I don't know. Like, I thought that was really, really interesting hearing how the narrator is acting the characters out and stuff. Like I thought that, and actually hearing the dialogue, um, I thought that was really, really fascinating too. So really cool, really cool tip. Yeah. Excellent. All right. Well, who do we have next week, JD? Next week, we've got Lisa Gardner coming back. Uh, her latest book is One Step Too Far. It's a second in series. It comes out, uh, I believe, January 18th. 
Um, Lisa's great. She's a number one New York Times bestseller. She's been doing this for a very long time. And, you know, the, the bulk of her stories have been a, a, a previous series. And this is, you know, again, this is a second in series. So she's got a, a brand new character. Um, it was a, a great character. It's a, a woman who investigates missing persons. Um, so I, I haven't actually read this one, but I'm looking forward to it. All right. Well, to our listeners, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and grab the free revision masterclass where you can see the storytelling process from beginning to end. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.